What is up, guys? We are back again with another episode. And in today's episode, we are joined by the lovely Nicola, as per usual, because we are continuing on this female-related health series. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about endometriosis, right? Now, from the offset, as I was just saying to Nicola before this call, like, I don't have a huge amount of experience coaching people with endometriosis. Like, yeah, I've read about it, but that's one thing. You kind of want to have, especially if we're going to be giving you practical information, you kind of want to have that theoretical knowledge and then also that like in-person actual experience, right? And as I'm not a woman, I've obviously not experienced this endometriosis myself. And because I've not coached women with endometriosis, I'm basically going to sit back and let Nicola give us a, <laughs> a masterclass here today, right? So with that out of the way, Nicola, what's the story with endometriosis? Like what, what even is it? Yeah, so your endometrium basically is the lining of your uterus or your womb. Um, and endometriosis then is a condition where patches of endometrial-like tissue, um, they grow in other parts of the body. So including your, your pelvic cavity, your ovaries, your fallopian tubes, and they can even pop up on the bowel, bladder, and then like very rarely um, the lung. Um, so the, the tissue, while it's not the same as the lining of the uterus, um, it's, it responds to hormonal fluctuations, just like in your menstrual cycle. Um, and so each month that, that tissue can, you know, build up, kind of break down and even cause bleeding, which then that all has the knock on effect of, you know, causing inflammation and um, irritation to that surrounding tissue, um, which can lead to a lot of pain, which is really characteristic of um, endometriosis. Um, so unfortunately, you know, it's it's a diagnosis that, you know, can take up to eight years um, to diagnose. It's a has complicated kind of symptomology, like you're saying, they, those kind of patches of tissue can pop up in numerous different places. Um, but the main kind of symptoms would be kind of women complaining of painful, heavy periods, um, a lot of pelvic pain, abdominal pain, um, fatigue, diarrhea, um, you know, a lot of kind of GI issues, low back pain um, and really intense cramping. Um, some women might not have any symptoms at all. Um, and even the severity of the disease isn't exactly, but the severity of the symptoms doesn't necessarily cor correlate with the extensiveness of the disease as well. Um, and like I was saying, a lot of those um, symptoms there, they can overlap with a lot of things like IBS, IBD. So even a woman who has kind of mild endometriosis, um, you know, they might kind of go kind of seeking for help and it might kind of be wrote off as IBS or, or something, something similar. Um, so that's why it can take a long time to diagnosis. Um, and as well, um, it's it's a difficult one to diagnose because you know ultrasounds and um, pelvic exams they, they might not exactly pick it up despite someone having all that pain and um, so the gold standard for diagnosis is you know a tissue sample um, which obviously would involve kind of surgical exploration which a lot of people don't want to do which is understandable yeah like it sounds that sounds kind of shit to be honest <laughs> but it sounds like there's a lot going on right there's a lot of it almost sounds like you know with, with cancer like you have cancer in one side of the body and then you know if it progresses enough it can go to other sites of the body right so it sounds kind of similar to that which you know that's scary enough in and of itself but you've basically got this tissue this endometrial lining this this type of cell whatever and then it finds itself for whatever mechanism in another part of the body right and i don't know if it was you or gary that wrote this down in the in the notes that we have but i'll just go through the like common sites because you, you kind of touched on them there but yeah. the reason i want to bring them all up is because 
you can see that this, if this is causing pain and whatever else in these different areas, like if you can get to a variety of different areas, you're going to have a variety of different like presenting symptoms. Like if you go, Oh, I've got pain over here. Or I've got pain over here. I've got pain over here. Like as a doctor, even how are you going to go? Oh, that's, that's endometriosis. That that's exactly what that is because it's so disparate. Right. I mean, I'll just go through them. So uh, ovary and ovarian fossa 57 and 32% anterior and posterior cul-de-sac uh, posterior broad ligaments uh, uterosacral ligaments is 46%, uh, pouch of Douglas, 30%, bladder, uterus, fallopian tubes, fallopian tubes, uh, sigmoid colon, appendix, round ligaments, and then other vagina, cervix, recto vagina septum, cecum, ilium, inguinal, I hate that word, I can never say it, <laughs> canals, uh, perennial uh, scars, ureters, uh, umbilicus, and then extra pelvic sites, you know, and like you said, that could even be the lungs and stuff, you know? Exactly. Uh, so that's a lot of different areas. And yeah, okay, it might all be like, you know, in, in and around your abdomen, right? You're like, oh, there's some abdominal pain. But like anyone who's had pain in their abdomen, right? Even from like food or whatever, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly where you're feeling it. You're kind of like, yeah, maybe it's the lower left. No, maybe it's a little bit higher. Like it's very hard to pinpoint exactly what's going on. So if we've got a, an issue or a, a, a a problem here where the individual that's feeling this stuff they feel the pain like the pain is there like the, regardless of what causes it or whatever the pain is there it can be very hard to pinpoint exactly oh this is where the pain is but then also they go to present to a doctor or whatever and first of all it's I guess, second of all it's very hard to describe what pain is you know you're kind of like oh it feels very sharp it, it kind of feels like electricity or it kind of feels like this throbbing like there's so many different varieties of that painful sensation and then if you're kind of going I can't really pinpoint exactly where it is. It kind of feels somewhere in my abdomen. And then the doctor is going like this, this could be anything. Like this could literally be like so many different things. It leads to a situation where, like you said, like the average diagnosis time is like eight years or whatever, which is, you know, that, that's kind of a, again, another shit fucking run with this stuff where you're kind of going, right. I have this problem every single month. Cause there's a hormone hormonal uh, aspect to this, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second. Um, Every single month I'm getting like extreme pain, for example, and I go to the doctor and they're not able to tell me what's going on. You know, they're not able to go, oh, this is exactly what the problem is. And you're doing that for the guts of 10 years trying to figure this stuff out. Like you're in pain, you're not getting help because you're not getting like an accurate diagnosis. It can be very frustrating, I presume, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, 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 that's the biggest thing is that the the time to diagnosis then that could mean you know a woman's in pain for um eight years and it's kind of a chronic pain syndrome um and even the knock-on effects of that is things like a lot of kind of sick days and work again just kind of fatigue disrupted sleep um so there's more i suppose like uh, mental disturbances as well associated with um endometriosis yeah and on this, is it just a, like, this is, I, I, I do know the answer, but is it just a pain thing that we're looking at here? Is it just a, oh, this is just something that causes pain. No big deal. Like, you know, other people are in pain. Who cares? You know, is, is it that, is it just a pain thing or is there something more going on here that we're kind of like, right, actually a, an earlier diagnosis would not just help with the pain, but an earlier diagnosis would also help with other things going on. Yeah, so the, the other kind of main one that we're looking at is fertility. And 
with someone getting a diagnosis of endometriosis, it can be, um, you know, pretty harrowing because it's a it's a huge cause of infertility in women, and um, particularly with the formation of endometriomas, which are um, cysts within the ovaries that are associated with endometriosis. Um, and again, if, if they are left untreated for a prolonged period of time, um, they can essentially almost like erode away at, at the ovary and then cause infertility as well. Um, so it's it's a huge um, cause of concern for a lot of women. Um, and then particularly, I know from one of my own clients, again, who, who was looking to, to get pregnant, who um, was on the pill, again, to regulate some of the symptoms, but then coming off the pill just, you know, led to this huge cascade of pain. Um, so, you know, a lot of women, you know, need um, one, you know, to come off the pill to get pregnant, obviously, um, but will need kind of hormonal um, treatments like, you know, to say like IVF as well to to get pregnant. Not all the time, um, but sometimes. Hmm. And again, like that is one of the things that I, I, as I said, I was telling you before this, like I often when I'm researching these things, I'll try to see what like the real world experience is in terms of like what people are experiencing, what they're talking about. And that seems to be a very common issue for people with endometriosis they're kind of like right i've got to a situation where my symptoms are somewhat managed like there's still pain present there's still whatever but i have a combination of you know painkillers the pill or whatever it is and they're like i have things managed but then they want to get pregnant you know they're basically their situation changes and they're like yeah actually i wouldn't mind getting pregnant now that's kind of on the cards and now they have to mess with this you know carefully balanced you know treatment regimen that they have and they're going okay now everything all the wheels fall off the wagon what do i do here the things that i used to do that used to be able to help me i can't really do them now because they're antagonistic to getting pregnant etc and so that that's kind of a hard place to be now obviously look we can't on this podcast we can't help with that you know that's not the, the purpose of this podcast at least um but it is something that people commonly say. So if you're just coming to this and you're going, oh, I just got a diagnosis of endometriosis. I don't know what the story is. Like, this is something that potentially you have to think about ahead of time, ideally, because you can better prepare yourself. But also if you're someone that has been dealing with endometriosis, either known endometriosis or unknown, like this is something that you know, potentially in the future, you're going to have to deal with, you know? So I suppose it makes sense right now to kind of go through the symptoms of endometriosis. I know we touched on them a second ago, but we're, we're talking about this thing that has a very, I don't know, disparate, you know, effect. You're coming like, oh, you know, abdominal pain, you know? Is that all that you have to go on? Is that all that you're kind of like, oh, someone comes to you, you know, random abdominal pain, you know, it's going to take you eight years to diagnosis as endometriosis. Um, but are there any other symptoms that we could potentially look at and go, oh, these also help us diagnose what's going on? You know, especially like, say, for example, like I, I mentioned earlier on that there seems to be some sort of hormonal contribution to this, you know, is, is that something that we can use? And the reason I want to ask this is because like, I know it's very hard to diagnose yourself, right? And I'm putting that in inverted commas or air quotes or whatever, because like, obviously you don't diagnose yourself, right? But if you can go to a doctor with an idea, like you've better like, oh, I've got these symptoms. You might not have thought that they were related but you're like, I actually do have these symptoms. It can be very easy or easier for a doctor to kind of go, okay, so you actually have a variety of symptoms here. I'm going to be able to make a diagnosis as a result of that, rather than coming with just one symptom, you know? But anyway, so what are kind of the symptoms of endometriosis? Like what are, what are people actually like experiencing? 
Yeah, so I suppose in you know a woman presenting with you know pelvic pain or heavy painful periods, endometriosis is something that should always be um, considered or ruled in. Um, so yeah, painful, heavy periods, prolonged periods, um, you know, bleeding in between periods as well, um, mid-cycle pain, um, kind of diarrhea, bloating, um, uh, kind of painful sex. Um, even pain on movements sometimes, even in the lower back, kind of um, progressive pain. Um, and that can be down to a number of things. It's a kind of an estrogen um, driven state, but also an inflammatory state. Um, and it can cause um, chronic changes to kind of to the nervous system and I suppose a, a sensitization to particularly to our sympathetic nervous system, which is driving on that pain. Mm. And again, like as you said, there, there's a variety of symptoms there and some of them are very every day or you know whatever you want to call it like they're very this is just normal for a woman you know you're going to be like oh yeah like i have sometimes i have diarrhea sometimes i have constipation it's related to my cycle no big deal like you're just going to kind of write that off and go like oh yeah like you know, loads of women experience that no big deal you know you might be like oh you know around say i don't know ovulation for example you might be like oh like i feel a bit more pain there or and then during like you know, in the lead up to or during my period i feel more pain there but you're like oh, that's just me. That's just normal for me. I always, I've always felt like that, whatever, you know, it's very easy to write off a lot of these symptoms as just being normal because a lot of women will have similar symptoms. They will have similar experience like throughout the month. So again, very easy to just go, ah, no big deal. Like I, yeah, I have these really intense periods of pain, but it's not related to these other symptoms that I have, you know, but yeah. again, it potentially is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Definitely. It's always something that needs to be ruled out, you know, um, but again, the diagnosis is tricky. Um, so you might just be going off clinical suspicion um, symptoms to kind of, you know, diagnose it without kind of surgical exploration. Mm. I don't know if you want to talk now a little bit about like what's kind of causing this pain. I know we just we, we did say it a little bit in a second ago in terms of there is a few things going on that cause this pain. But the reason I want to go through this is because like. I always find, at least for me, when I know what's going on, I'm like, okay, so that's actually explaining the pain. So like, what's actually happening here to cause this pain? Yeah, so it seems to be mostly through inflammatory changes um, and endometriosis related pain um, is kind of associated with an increased production of, you know, um, inflammatory and kind of pain mediators in, in the body. So you'll see an increase in like cytokines, um, et cetera. There also seems to be an imbalance of kind of our nerve fibers. So like I was saying, you know, the sympathetic and kind of sensory nerve fibers, they seem to be kind of off balance and, and have more of an endometriosis uh, related pain as well. Hmm. yeah because again it, it is again at least for me i'm kind of going like okay we've got this little bit of tissue this little bit of cell that has gone somewhere else in the body that it shouldn't be why would that cause pain you know it's like okay yeah it shouldn't be there maybe yeah that's it it's an irritant if you will again i'll just put that in air quotes but it's a lot more than that right that cell is like you know or no cells that tissue is like attaching again i'm putting that in air quotes to these other tissues that it shouldn't be in and then as a result of that it's still acting somewhat like the tissue that it was beforehand so the signals that you know your endometriosis it like it sheds monthly whatever um so it's still reacting to those same signals so it's still doing some of the similar things that it would do if it was in the right place so if say it's again let's say it's, it's gone to your ovaries or something you know if it's attached onto your ovaries it's still responding to those same signals right Exactly, so, yeah. you know, basically having this like you know 
shedding, if you will, like it has a bit of that localized bleeding, inflammatory inflammation, etc. Then also, it seems to, like you were saying, with the nervous system, it seems to be pushing changes. We'll just say like that. You know, it seems to be changing the nervous system in a way that makes you somewhat more sympathetic dominant, not overall, but just in uh, around there. And as a result of that, you have this increased sensitivity to that pain and increased pain in general, you know? So it doesn't sound like a, a very, you know, fun time. You know? <laughs> not ideal, not ideal. Um, I, I think it was Gary to put in some symptoms here of endometrius related pain. Um, there's other ones, which we've talked about some of these on the podcast before. And also we will talk about some of them in, in future. We've got this like dysmenorrhea so again we've mentioned this a painful sometimes disability disabling if i can't even speak here disabling cramps during the menstrual period but again a lot of people write that off they go yeah look i just i always have pain in my period i just take a week off work and i just you know sit on the sofa with a hot water bottle or whatever it is you're just like that's just me right um you know pain may get worse over time it's progressive pain you know there's a low back pain linked you know to the pelvis again here so again a lot of women will find they have low back pain during their period so you kind of write that off and go look that again that's just the way i present that's just you know the way things yeah. are and um, but then you can also have this kind of chronic pelvic pain right and i think yeah. the once there's this kind of chronic pain i think people are a little bit more like they're like they, they pay a little bit more attention to it they're kind of going like oh this is something that's always either it's a low grade pain or a high grade pain it's, it's always in the background so for them they're kind of going okay I, I need to get this sorted, you know, whereas I feel like with cyclical pain, like people are kind of like, oh, okay, this is, this is fucking terrible at the time, but at least I have whatever, three weeks off from this, <laughs> you know? Um, so the chronic pain, I feel like people kind of really do pay a lot more attention to, but there's more to it then as well. Like you mentioned, I can't even say this word just in case anyone's wondering, uh, dyspareunia, whatever, but anyway, it's basically painful sexual intercourse. Right. And again, as I said, like I often go through like forums and stuff in relate when I'm researching a topic, I'm like, what's people's experience. And this is something that a lot of people seem to be saying where they're like, look, they used to have an intimate relationship. They used to have whatever, uh, intimacy. And now they've got progressive endometriosis. And all of a sudden they're kind of going like, like sex is just not enjoyable anymore. It's not like, first of all, they're in pain a lot of the time. So they're yeah. not in the mood for it. Right. But then also when they do it, they're like, this is just painful. It's not enjoyable. It's not an enjoyable experience overall. So again, that sounds pretty fucking shit. Um, and then we also have this uh, dysuria, uh, which is urinary urgency, frequency, and sometimes painful voiding, you know, like basically fucking things out. Uh, why are all these words always in fucking German? Uh, <laughs> uh, which is pain associated with ovulation, which again, if we're saying, okay, this is somewhat, you know, hormonally related, uh, well, it's not somewhat, it is hormonally related. Um, you can imagine that during ovulation, as we talked about in a previous podcast, like the hormones change throughout the cycle, right? So during ovulation, you might be like, all right, that's actually quite painful. I, I, I feel that, right? And I know a, a, a number of women say that they can feel ovulation right? They're like, oh, I can feel ovulation occur. And that oftentimes when I, I hear that, I'm like, that first of all, that sounds pretty cool. Like, it's like, <laughs> you know exactly where you are in your cycle. But other than that, I'm like, maybe there is some sort of, you know, endometriosis connection here where you're like, you're actually feeling that little bit of pain because, you know, the whatever endometrial lining or whatever has gone to this other area and you're able to feel that ovulation and you're, you're feeling it as like, oh yeah, I'm feeling like a release of an egg or whatever. But really, you're just actually feeling that kind of estrogen-mediated estrogen 
pain uh, yeah. so it's a weird one with that at least, at least to me you know and then the final one there is just bodily movement pain so you know if you try exercising and standing or walking you're just in pain you know again yeah. sounds like a fairly fucking shit time but do you have anything to say on any of those kind of pain related issues um, no, not, not not really. I suppose with, with with any of them, it just should you know raise your suspicion for endometriosis. Like I said, it's 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 mostly underdiagnosed. So having any of them, you know, it should should be something that you talk to your GP about. Hmm. Well, I think it was Gary that put in these in the notes, but uh, the risk factors. Do you uh, want to talk about the risk factors or any of the kind of like reduced risk? Because again, this is one of those ones. Like I. Like I did biochemistry for my degree. I really like biochemistry. That's that's my jam, right? And um, most diseases or whatever, I'm like, yeah, it's cool. Like at least we can see the etiology or etymology. I can never remember which one of those words is right, but we can see <laughs> uh, what's going on here. And I'm like, it's cool. It's cool science, right? But the one disease that always freaks me out is just prions diseases, right? Which basically misfolded proteins. I'm like, there's nothing you can do about this right it's like this is just random right like i would never like i literally would go to a country and i will eat whatever the local cuisine is if they're like yeah look it's fish eyeballs and goats fucking toenails i don't know i don't care right i'll be like yeah let's try this right but when someone goes oh yeah we're eating brain for me i'm like oh, like yeah. the risk of prions diseases here even if it's so low it just freaks me out so much right and that's the way a lot of people feel with just diseases in general right they're kind of like like how did this happen why did this happen to me you know like people back in the day were like oh like I w- i'm a good person why has god done this to me like why has god like forsaken me and given me this disease or whatever people still feel that in this day and age they may not blame god but they're like i'm a good person why the fuck did i get endometriosis like what did i do something wrong here did you know I, I, what, what happened right and we don't have like a a perfect like this is exactly what happened like you know this is the day one this is exactly you did this 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 trigger hit here whatever we don't have that you know and one of the things that i always find very hard or at least emotionally i always find very hard when people deal with like any kind of disease or illness or whatever like everyone always wants to blame themselves they're like did i do something wrong is it me did i like did i i don't know i i smoked one weed or whatever you know back in the day and it's if it was that you know um like that that kind of thought process like does go through everyone's mind when they get some sort of diagnosis is like what did i do wrong you know and i don't think that's very helpful emotionally or you know scientifically medically um but having said that there are still some risk factors and factors that reduce your risk of endometriosis because this is something that like you can just develop well you can just develop you develop later in life as well and it's it's that that's tough but anyway so risk factors here what's the story yeah, that's the thing. We, you know, we can't exactly like nail down why exactly women get endometriosis, you know, um, but we do know that there are some increased risks. Um, so it would be like your prolonged estrogen exposure. So that would be like having, you know, your period early to having kind of a late menopause, um, you know, um, not having any children. That's another one. Shorter cycles, um, heavy periods then. And it's also linked to some women that are kind of tall and have a low BMI kind of weirdly. Um, And then reduced risk would be, you know, having um, having babies um, and then um, breastfeeding as well or having um, a late period. Hmm. Yeah, like some of the ones. Late first period, I should say. Yeah. Um, Some of those ones are are a bit weird because like some of these like, say, for example, the tall. Right. That's again. Height is estrogen dependent. Well, somewhat estrogen dependent in terms of like your growth plates 
fuse because of estrogen, right? Like that's what's fusing your growth plates. Like if you're a guy, the reason most guys are taller than most women is because they have less estrogen, right? Like if you genuinely wanted to make your male child as tall as possible, like you could give them some sort of like suicidal estrogen receptor inhibitor, right? Like you could literally just be like, right, I'm going to give you, I don't know, even like a, a selective estrogen receptor modulator, like you could do that. You could be like, right, we're going to completely shut down aromatase, for example, and they have no estrogen. Now it would probably fuck up their brain in multiple ways, right? But they would be really tall. So you can imagine here in a situation, this is hormonally related. Endometriosis is hormonally related. So if you're taller than the average, you know, something has happened here in regards to estrogen. Now it's in being taller is generally associated with lower estrogen levels, which is kind of a weird one because then you're kind of going, well, if I lower estrogen levels and this is estrogen dependent, surely that would be protective, you know? So it is a weird one. But having said that again, it, the body is fucking weird. We don't, like some of these things were like in normal, uh, normal times, this is what happens. But then in this weird situation over here, this happens, but either way, it does seem to be a lot of these things are again, hormonally related, you know, and it's not like we control our hormones. It's not like we're like, well, to an extent we do like, obviously, like we talk about all the time, you know, good sleeping patterns, good health patterns in general, like they generally lead to a better hormonal profile, but it's not like you are going in and going, oh, I do these different things and my testosterone goes up like this, or I do these different things and my estrogen goes down or what, like, it's not, it's not that simple, you know, like you can be doing everything right and still have things, you know, out of whack, if you will, right? Um, so I don't think it's very helpful. I think it's important to know, but I don't think it's very helpful to really go like, oh, these are the risk factors and these are the reduced risk factors, you know? Like one of them is like basically pregnancy, you know? Like if you are, uh, whatever, let's say a lot of women these days have children in their 30s, right? Like they're not going to have them in their, their teens and their 20s. It's not really helpful to be like, oh yeah, like you're, you're 32 now and you've got endometriosis. Like if you actually wanted to reduce your risk, you should have had two children by now. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really helpful, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. What? No, definitely not. The one thing I suppose it would raise your clinical suspicion. So it, it might lead to a little bit earlier treatment, but then again, still the, the treatments aren't fantastic for endometriosis anyway. Yeah. Which we'll as well. like, and this is also another one where you're like, like if you've got a like earlier menarche, so you had your period earlier, you know, it's like, like you didn't control, <laughs> you didn't, you didn't decide like, oh yeah, control, exactly. I wanted to be nine years old having a period, you know, because that eight-year-olds and stuff, you know, like it's not like you made that decision, you know. Now a lot of that is related, especially because I know people always ask this in this the modern day, like women seem to be having periods earlier in time, and that seems to be associated with just the abundance of food. You know, you're able to yeah. be put yourself in a better I'm going to say hormonal situation, but it's more of like that abundant situation. You've got, you know, higher levels of growth hormone, higher levels of insulin, et cetera, because of the abundance of food. And, um, but that's just one thing. But again, that doesn't like, it's not something that you chose even as a child. Yeah. Okay. Like you, you quote unquote, choose to eat, you know, but you're just eating the food that your parents gave you or like the people around you gave you, you know? Um, so it's not like you chose, Oh, I'm going to do this thing. Like there's no way a child is thinking like, this is going to make my period come early. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. You did this, you've little control over it at the end of the day. Yeah. Uh, and that's important to understand. It's like, look, all of this stuff, all the risk factors and stuff, you don't really have a huge amount of control over them. But if you do notice, you're like, okay, I've been having these symptoms, I've been having like this, you know, undiagnosed pain. And then you look through this kind of like risk factor list, and you're going, okay, Jesus, actually, 
these are all me. Like I'm ticking all the boxes here or a few yeah. boxes, you know, it can help you kind of go, okay, I think I should go to the doctor about this. Cause this is one of those things like guys always get the, the blame here where they're kind of going, Oh, like guys don't go to the doctor. Like they literally have like a, a cancerous mole on their face and it's so obvious. And they're like, ah, it's grand. Like, Oh, yeah. it's fine. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, it'll be grand, you know? Whereas like women tend to go to the doctor more. They'll go, well, maybe not more, but they tend to go about the issues that they have. They're like, I have this issue. What's going on? But stuff around, first of all, like menstrual related stuff, you know, you can be kind of hesitant to go to your doctor. But also if you're kind of going in, you're going, I have this, you know, undiagnosed pain. And especially if maybe you're a little bit overweight, right? And you're a bit conscious about your weight. You can go in and go like, I don't want to go to the doctor, tell them this kind of stuff, because I know they're just going to tell me that, oh, you need to lose some weight or, oh, it's just, you know, it's just normal or, you know, whatever. Like it yeah. can be very hard to go into your doctor and first of all, get a diagnosis with this stuff, but to go in, even just to go in, like to, to actually talk about this stuff. And it can be very hard to do. And unfortunately again this is somewhat time dependent because again if we're talking about fertility you know like you don't want to reach that kind of in your 30s age because that's the, the general age people are having children these days you don't want to reach that in your 30s age and realize that that undiagnosed pain that you've been having for the last five years it's actually leading to reduced fertility now when you actually yeah. want to have children you know and, yeah. and this is especially true as well if you have been on the pill or whatever and you know, you were just on the pill because, you know, maybe whatever, you were a 14 year old or something. And you're kind of like, yeah, I'm having these like painful like periods. And the doctor just goes, yeah, okay, well, we're going to put you on the pill. And you've basically been on the pill for whatever, the last yeah. 15 years or something. You might not even know. You might be just like, oh yeah, like I still get these like painful issues or whatever, but you might not know. And then you come off and all of a sudden you're dealing with endometriosis, you know? So it is important to know the different risk factors at like they're not very helpful in terms of what to do but they're helpful to know what's going on exactly and it's important to know i suppose what's a normal period and what's a normal level of pain to have um around menstruation as well and that's something that we don't really learn in school and um, that's why a lot of women put up with it and that's another reason why the diagnosis is so delayed because they just expect it um, and accept the the pain yeah and also in the workplace as well like it's it's one of those things where you know, if you've got pain, you're kind of like, oh, I, can't, I can't take a week off work here. I can't like, you know, I just have to, you know, grin and bear it, go in. Like there's no support there. And that's not to say like, you know, we just give women archetypically just like, oh yeah, every four weeks you just take the week off or whatever. Like obviously lots of people don't want that and they don't need that. But uh, it, it is one of those hard situations in society where we've basically created society that you should just be working that whatever 50 weeks of the year you get your two weeks off or whatever and yeah okay you get some sick days but if you've got this chronic condition that makes you in pain there's no real support for that which yeah. is a lot of situations or a lot of downstream situations where you know maybe you choose an easier job it's not the job that you wanted but you know they give better support or that they potentially have like maybe i don't know it's easier for you to just i don't know sit at a desk or something from home you're kind of like oh, okay i can i can do my work from home and you know, I don't lie in my bed and type on my laptop or whatever, like you're choosing jobs because of your, your chronic condition here. And in, that's not right in my mind. <laughs> I'm like, you know, ideally we have a society that, you know, we help everyone. Now, again, it's one of those hard ones. I don't have the answer here. Do we go, oh yeah, like if you have endometriosis, you just get every whatever, four weeks off or whatever. I don't have, I don't know if that's the, the best answer there, but 
this stuff can be hard to deal with beyond just the bodily pain, like the actual, I don't know what you want to call them, like societal implications for this. They're hard as well. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of more sick days from work um, and as well, avoiding social situations as well. Um, and like I was saying, you know, increased likelihood of mood disturbances through lack of sleep, stress, pain. Um, so there's huge more knock on effects of that. Yeah. And again, there's there's no like, oh, here's the protocol that we deal with this stuff with, you know. And again, it, it's one of those hard ones because I think it was Spain recently. They gave uh, more like days off for yeah it's brilliant um so like stuff like that obviously helpful especially in cases like this now i i'm i'm never a fan of those ones where it's like oh you must take these days off because like you basically if you if you were forced to take every fourth week off or so you'd be like yeah i don't i don't need to do that you know i can i can keep working you know but when they give you the option it's like okay cool like this is this is helpful here you know um but anyway, look, we are not a, well, we're a quasi-medical podcast, I suppose you would say, but we are not predominantly a medical podcast. And what we really care about is what can we actually do about this stuff? What can we actually do to help with endometriosis? And unfortunately, there's not a lot, right? There's not exactly like, oh, do this you know, exercise plan, do this nutrition plan, and all your problems are going to be solved, right? But we can think about things a little bit in the in the or through the lens of like exercise and nutrition and go are we at least ticking the boxes there so that we set ourselves up for better management of endometriosis you know like there's no real cure to endometriosis at least as far as i'm aware of and so we're really just looking at management here so on the training side of things what are we thinking here nicola yeah so with with training I suppose it's getting you know any type of training in um you know I I know we're predominantly kind of go towards resistance training but it depending on where someone's starting off um just even kind of um low impact cardiovascular training even starting off um you know kind of 20 minutes a day kind of three days a week um and again that that can help with um you know, chronic pain and kind of just pain modulation as well. Um, so starting off small and kind of, you know, build, building that up. Um, then you need to think about kind of modifications that need to be made for exercises as well. So particularly if you're a coach and, you know, your client has endometriosis, you know, are you, um, do you have exercises that have them, you know, lying on their front? Um, do you have exercises where you might have a barbell across their hips that might be causing pain there? Um, so it's just about kind of checking in and, and seeing what suits the the, the person specifically. Um, but yeah, definitely just getting some sort of, of exercise in is, is better than than anything yeah the key here in, in my mind at least well, from my reading it's like you basically just want to do some sort of exercise it doesn't yeah. actually matter too much like there's no like specific methods or you know protocols that seem to be better than others we just want to get some sort of exercise in throughout the week you know and again depending on your starting point that can look so different that could literally like you said be like go for a walk for 20 yeah. minutes three times a week you know like that does help and it helps in a number of ways first of all obviously like exercise makes people feel better in general like they, they feel yeah. like it's kind of like they used to have this like endorphin whatever that's not really true but you kind of get this endorphin high like you feel good you're like oh yeah like I, I enjoy that exercise i feel good after it like you might not enjoy it while you're doing it you might be like oh like i have to do the exercise whatever but generally people feel good so there is that mood elevation that you get from it which that's obviously a symptom here we've got mood disturbances potentially so ideal we've got something that can help with that but also like you noted it does seem to help with the 
inflammatory condition here, right? Because exercise in general makes you better able to handle inflammation, which sounds like a bit of a misnomer, but you think about it here, you basically got this, what's called a hormetic stressor. We've got, you know, a stress here in terms of the exercise we're doing. That's a stress on the body, right? Your body has to, you know, create a little bit of inflammation to deal with that stress, right? But in doing so, you actually get better at dealing with inflammation in general, because you're like, oh, I know what to do with this inflammation. I know how to turn the dial of inflammation a lot better. I can turn it up and I can turn it down, right? So then when we deal with inflammation from other things, we're better able to turn the dial down. Now, it's not a cure-all. It's not like I'm going to say like, you're crippled over in pain and I go, oh yeah, just do some exercise. Obviously, that's not helpful, right? But if we can build that baseline and build that kind of momentum behind you of doing some exercise a couple of times per week, you're going to be in a better position to deal with more information in future. Right. And in general, like we just recommend that kind of you know, two to four hours per week, get that in. It could be resistance training. It could be cardio training. It could be just like light walking, whatever it is, whatever you can do, get in two to four hours per week. You're going to be in a much better position right now. Obviously that's not to say that you have to start there. You know, it's not to say that you have to start at that kind of like get in four hours per week, you know, you could start at, again, whatever, 20 minutes per day, go for a little walk, you know, whatever. All that stuff is going to help, you know. But the one thing that I do want to say on this, especially for coaches that are listening to this, like you touched on the exercise variety, but also you should be thinking about program variety. And what I mean by that is, like, how are you actually varying your training over a month, right? And we're going to use the archetypical, like, month here for, you know, the, the female cycle. It's rarely that, but, you know, we'll just say the, the month, Right. Like you should have within your plan, if you know you have a client that's coming in, they're like, right, every four weeks, I'm crippled over in pain. You know, I'm, I'm in a lot of pain here. I can't be doing all these other exercises. Like, do we have variation built into the program, right? We can preempt that. We can do stuff like, okay, you know, we're going to set the program up to your cycle. You seem to be quite regular, or maybe you're on the pill. So we have a, a little bit better control of this. We have a little bit more of like, we know what's happening when, um, and you're going to go, okay, we're going to have like, this is an easier week. You know, you might change out the exercises. Again, some of the exercises might be like, right, normally we do a hip thrust here because we want to build up the glutes or whatever. But, you know, that's just when you're really feeling the pain, we have to swap that exercise out, you know, and you have options. You have easier exercises. You have more moderate exercises, whatever, right? You can pre pre-organize that, right? But what we generally recommend, especially for menstrual related pain is, having a more auto-regulatory approach to your training, right? And what I mean by that is you want to have an approach where some days, if you're feeling on fire, you're like, yes, I've got this. Like those days, you're going to push a little bit harder. On the days where you're a little bit more tired, you're going to take it a little bit easier. You know, you can do this for, you know, in general, like we generally recommend that, just be like, right, look, life gets in the way. You're not going to always have this 10 out of 10 perfect training session, but especially with like endometriosis. Like if you're in pain, you know, and you want to get some exercise in, you know, you might be able to do the same exercises you've been doing, but just use a lighter weight or don't go quite as close to failure. Like generally what we'll use is some sort of like RPE or reps in reserve, just as a, a kind of way to, to manage this. You might be going, okay, normally I do whatever, a hundred kilos on my hip thrust and I do it and I'm, I'm like very close to failure. You know, I've got two reps in reserve. I'm, I'm very close to failure. You know, we might go, okay, look, that that exercise we're not going to do that it just seems to be causing pain for you right now but we want to do some 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 exercise for the glutes but you're still in pain we're going to do an exercise and we're going to keep you at you know an rpe of like five you know it's just like going through the motions like it's still challenging 
but it's not destroying you, you know? So we can modulate things both in terms of exercise selection and then also in terms of like rating of perceived exertion or, you know, you can, you can argue intensity if you will, you know? Um, but those kind of like auto-regulatory rails to the program seem to be quite beneficial so that you can continue exercising when you have endometriosis, you know? You can also build in things where it's like, okay, you know, during the time periods that you have a lot of pain, we're going to bring in really light exercise. You know, we're just going to get the body moving. If some of these things, you know, some people recommend like yoga and stuff, like sometimes that can be more painful because you have to engage your core a lot more. You know, you're in these random positions like Pilates, for example, I saw a lot of people recommending Pilates and hundred percent that can definitely help in general. But for some people, that's going to be more painful because you've got a lot of like core contraction there going on. And again, it's, it's one of those things that, you want to be aware of your own presentation, your own symptoms. You know, you might try it out one time and go, look, that's actually, that's a no-go for me, you know? And so there are a few different things to be thinking about with training. And I don't know if you've anything to add to that. And if not, what's the story with uh, pelvic floor exercises? Because this is something that, again, you'll see people, you know, state in general for, for women. But is that related to endometriosis? Yeah. So I think, you know, going back, definitely allowing yourself that flexibility to either, you know, change around the routine that you're doing or go easier is important. Um, and just pushing through it, pushing through the pain isn't necessarily the best thing to do. Um, and yeah, even for coaches, just knowing when to kind of pull back with the client as well. You might, if you're in this huge amount of pain, um, you know, not sleeping as well, you'll have a reduced ability to recover. So just kind of peeling back for a couple of days might be lead to more progression kind of longer term um, but definitely pelvic floor exercises can help um, for a lot of women particularly with the dyspareunuria again I can't pronounce it myself um, but working with pelvic health physio can be really beneficial for this as well um, a lot of women with endometriosis might kind of have more um, tighter contracted pelvic floor um, so definitely working with someone on that um, can improve symptoms yeah. And that's also another one with the, like the painful intercourse as well. Like a lot of women say that like those uh, dilators and stuff and doing pelvic floor exercises or working with a pelvic floor coach and not going to say like doing pelvic floor exercises, just like, this is the be all and end all, but like there are options here. You know, there are things that you can do. This isn't just a, Oh, look, I have this issue. It's just completely right off. I, I'm just you know, basically giving up on life basically, you know, it's not the case. Like there are things that you can do. Yeah. We don't have a perfect, like here's our, our toolbox and here's the exact cure for this. You know, we don't have that, but we do have, you know, some solutions for different problems. And unfortunately you just have to try a lot of different things out, talk to a little, a lot of different people with regard to what has worked for them in similar situations. You might get a little bit of a, a clue. Like again, I, I go on all those forums and stuff like Reddit or whatever. And yeah. like you see a lot of help in those places, you know, and some of it's misguided. Like we'll talk about supplements in a second. And some of it's just misguided. It's like this, this is probably not helpful, but it might give you ideas. It might give you something to talk about with your like primary care doctor or whatever and go, can we try this have you seen success with this whatever you know and um, but ultimately on the training front look basically you just need to do some sort of training find some training that you enjoy find some training that you can continue doing get it in throughout the week like it literally doesn't matter if it's just walking jogging you know doing resistance training you just want to do some sort of training it seems to be beneficial for the vast majority of people we have mechanistic reasons for why it would potentially be beneficial and then also in the real world it seems to be beneficial you know um 
daily sporting exercise or daily activity seems to be the most protective. Um, and in some cases, it's you know better pain management than taking painkillers. That's in some studies that it, 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 it's been shown to do that. But again, we have to look at this in terms of your actual experience. You know, we can't just go, yeah, if you start exercising every single day, that's going to be better than the, the painkillers you take. You know, that, that might not be the case, but we do have a lot of reason to believe that training in general, exercise in general is a good thing, right? Exactly. On the nutrition front now, Nicola, what's the story here? Because I think a lot of people think like, oh, there's going to be some sort of nutrition, like do this. And we've got this like perfect like plan of action for this. Because, you know, again, hormonally related stuff or hormone related stuff, I should say, people tend to think like, oh, I can manipulate my nutrition here and I'm going to get this big effect. I'm going to get this, you know, 10,000% increase in testosterone or you know, I'm going to be able to modulate my cycle or whatever. And to an extent, we can, right? Because we talked about like uh, amenorrhea and that's obviously related to nutrition. But in general here, nutrition isn't that powerful a tool, right? It is quite a powerful tool, but in regard to endometriosis, I don't think it's that powerful. But what's the story? So yeah, that, that's important to note. Like at, at the minute, there are no dietary recommendations for um, you know, prevention or treatment of endometriosis. Um, and particularly in, in the kind of fitness world, you do see, you know, kind of nutrition for endometriosis pop up. Um, but right now we don't have any solid guidelines. Um, but we do know that number of dietary changes um, you know, have been reported to reduce the severity of you know, menstrual pain um, and symptoms of endometriosis. So um, it is still important to you know, consider. And then just for general health, kind of having better nutrition is always going to be a net positive. Um, but in general for endometriosis, so we know it's an inflammatory kind of driven state. So um, increasing anti-inflammatory foods, decreasing pro-inflammatory foods is going to be important here. Um, so you're looking at kind of reduce, reducing your saturated fat intake, prioritizing unsaturated fats and kind of oily fish, your omegas, um, reducing uh, like your kind of red meat intake as well has been shown to uh, decrease the severity of symptoms. Now, knock on effect, if you were to completely cut out your red meat and there's a lack of iron there, that's something that needs to be considered as well. So looking at kind of leaner cuts of, of red meat, if you're going down that route. Um, but yeah, reducing, you know, your processed food intake. And then there's a lot of women that have kind of reported um, that actually going, even though they don't have a gluten, they're not celiac, but actually having uh, going gluten free or having a reduced amount of gluten in the diet um, has shown a decrease in pain as well. Um, and I know anecdotally from one of my clients as well, finds the exact same thing. You know, if they are kind of having a carb processed carb heavy day, um, they find that they have a lot more kind of cramping and pain. So that that that's one thing can help. And then you've a lot of other other um, things that can help. So again, anecdotally, um, you know, kind of high um, FODMAPs as well can um, um, kind of, you know, irritate, kind of cause those IBS symptoms as well. Um, so that's another thing. So diets high in fiber as well can be really helpful. So we know a lot of the, the estrogen kind of metabolites can kind of stick around. So fiber is going to be one of those things that kind of help kind of mop them up in the intestines um, and just kind of help excrete that, that estrogen. Um, so kind of green cruciferous veg, they have a um, a compound called DIM. And this is one of the big kind of supplements that you would see as well. But this is found in your green cruciferous veg, like broccoli, kale, um, 
uh, spinach. Um, so they're what um, GIM does. It helps kind of break down the, the estrogen into kind of more favor, favorable metabolites that can help be excreted from the body. Um, so prioritizing them in the diet can be helpful as well. And then as well, if you're having um, really painful, heavy periods and there might be a lot of um, you know, mental bleeding and that can lead to a loss of iron. So you're at a higher risk of kind of iron deficiency anemia there as well. So prioritizing iron rich foods, again, like your dark um, leafy green veg and um, fortified cereals, that sort of thing. Yeah, 100 percent. And again, if you listen to any of our podcasts, it's basically the diet that we recommend for quite a lot of people. It's like, okay, let's get the baseline here. Let's go get a lot of fruit and veg in, right? That's a start with that baseline, get some lean proteins in uh, with regard to like endometriosis. There does seem to be this red meat link. Yeah. You're like, okay, look, you want to get some red meat in the diet. It is one of these ones where it's a bit of a balancing act because we don't necessarily know if it was, say, the, the saturated fat from that red meat, because oftentimes that's okay. a confirming factor. And we do know or we seem to know at least um, that saturated fat seems to be in a uh, cause or not cause seems to be associated with endometriosis symptoms and, you know issues um so it could be the saturated fat could be the red meat itself but then we run into this issue of we need enough iron in the diet for everyone in general but especially if you're having like heavy periods or whatever you're going to need probably a little bit more iron right but then exactly. go for your red meat and maybe uh, like you, you don't want to go for that because you know you're thinking that's associated with increased risk of symptoms related to endometriosis but then maybe you also have a situation where certain you know, veg doesn't sit right with you. Like this kind of like higher FODMAP diet where you're eating a lot of different uh, fruit and veg, that could actually be a negative for you, you know? And this is the thing about all of this stuff. It's not like we have the one key, we have the one perfect plan of action, you know? Like those high FODMAP foods could be associated with increases in, you know, endometriosis symptoms that IBS, like I did a podcast, you know, a couple of podcasts ago with Brian related to this. And it is one of those things where, you almost get punished for doing the right thing. You know, you could start off and going, Oh yeah, I'm going to eat a diet high in fruits and vegetables, right? That's, that seems to be associated across the board with better health for a variety of people. You know, you get more fiber in. And like you said, that seems to help with, you know, the estrogen metabolism. You also seem to have these different like phytochemicals and bioactive compounds like this DIM, this DIM, um, which is methane or whatever it is. And um, you're like, oh, this has some you know, benefit in terms of estrogen metabolism, puts them into a better position and they can be excreted. Cool. So we're getting all these different compounds and we're getting in our, our anti-inflammatory, like uh, antioxidants and all this stuff. You're going, yeah, this is, this is great. And then all of a sudden you start noticing that your, your gut health deteriorates, you're getting way worse, uh, like IBS, you're getting all this different stuff going on and you're going, well, what the fuck, right? Now there might be a, a case of, you know, you kind of just need, you just change the diet, you know, you kind of need this, you know, week to two weeks to kind of let your body settle into it, but you could be doing everything right there and eating a lot of fruit and veg and actually have some sort of like, you know, FODMAP sensitivity, you know, some issue with one of these foods or potentially a variety of these foods, you know? Um, so you might have to do a little bit of a, an elimination style diet to kind of really pinpoint on those different issues, you know, what's going on there. And then it's the same with, you know, we generally recommend people eat like whole grains and, you know, good starchy carbohydrates that are, you know, unprocessed or whatever. And then you might have, or be one of these people that seems to, 
get some sort of like celiac-like symptoms or you know non-celiac-like symptoms. Either way, you re- seem to react to something in the bread, some gluten, not in the bread, something in <laughs> the grains. Um, and you might be like, okay, so for me, I can't eat those things. And now maybe you also have this high FODMAP issue going on. So it can be very hard to really navigate all of this stuff. Um, but having said that, once you get it right, like if you can really get the things dialed in, you potentially do have some sort of diet that is supportive of your endometriosis. You know, like we said at the start here in terms of this nutrition section, there's no general diet recommendations for prevention or treatment. We just don't have them, right? We do generally have some baseline diet recommendations for good general health, but we do also have now some information to potentially suggest okay, these are some avenues that you can look at. You can, again, play with the dials here and go, okay, maybe I have a little bit less of that or a little bit more of that. And you can find a diet that is more supportive for you. Is it going to cure your endometriosis? Fuck no, you know? But is it going to support you? Potentially, right? And that's the thing with all this stuff. I can't give you a definitive, like, do this, it's going to help. If I could do that, or if I was, you know, uh, a charlatan or whatever, and I was willing to do that, like, believe me we can make him way more money we could just write the endometriosis handbook here's the diet do this exact thing you know and we might produce more content in the future for endometriosis you know if people are like oh i really need help with this we might do that but we're always going to give you that caveat going like look we don't have the research to suggest that this is the be all and end all for you it might be okay i'm going to start off with this baseline diet then i'm going to test like Am I actually feeling better with this? Oh no. Okay. Maybe I'm going to have to switch out some of these fruits and vegetables based on this FODMAP approach. Didn't change anything. Okay. So that's not the issue, right? I've been having a lot of saturated fat. Okay. I'm going to reduce that. Going to change, get rid of any trans fats in the diet. Most trans fats are out of the diet these days, but you know, maybe you do have some stuff in there, right? Like, okay, get rid of that. Nothing has changed. I'm eating red meat. Okay. Maybe I'm going to eat it only twice per week. So I'm still getting some iron in, but I'm not you know, basing my diet on that. Nothing has changed. Okay, maybe you bring in some more like fatty fish. Okay, oh, now I'm starting to see some symptom relief here. Okay, there we go. We've got some little thread to pull on, right? So it, it is one of those things where you just have to keep tweaking. If you need help with this, like I know Brian does do a lot of stuff with like, you know, menstrual related issues, PCOS and endometriosis. So he potentially can help. And I know Nicola, I know you do obviously as well uh, help people with this stuff, you know, but I do want to say on the diet front, there's some weird ones that also seem to be like associated here, right? For example, like alcohol can negatively affect endometriosis, right? And we generally advocate, you know, lower alcohol diets seems to be better for health in general. I think most people are aware of that, but this is one of those things where, it, it can actually be hard to put in play because you can imagine you've had a really rough day in work. You've been having these cramps all day. If your sleep has been a bit fucking off and you're, you're just, you're just a bit you know, annoyed or whatever, you're going to go home, crack open the, the red wine or whatever. You're like, okay, I just want to have like a relaxing evening. A lot of people do that in general, but that could actually be leading to worsening symptoms down the road. Like alcohol seems to negatively affect the, the symptomology of endometriosis. So it seems like it's a bit of a, a, a cure for the, the stress, the, the, the lifestyle related stuff, but it could actually be worsening symptoms down the road, which is again, one of those shit things that you just have to fucking deal with. You have endometriosis, right? But then there's another one as well, which again, like I actually have a, an anti-coffee bias. So this, this hit my bias perfectly, but coffee and caffeine are potentially bad for endometriosis risk and for symptoms, right? 
but the research on this is quite mixed. You know, my bias is to say, ah, oh, fuck it, like the caffeine, it's getting you, you know? Um, but that's not 100% supported by the, the research, you know? But the reason I bring this up is because, again, we're not giving you the diet here. We're not giving you do this. I just want to make you aware that some of these things seem to be related, you know? Okay, you, you may have heard all of that and going, I'm doing all of that stuff, right? But I'm actually including alcohol in my diet. You pull that out and you go, okay, actually, I'm starting to get a little bit of symptom relief here. Or maybe you've been having three, four or five, six cups of coffee per day, like a lot of people in the world. And you go, okay, I'm actually going to pull them out or at least reduce them. Oh, now I'm actually seeing some sort of like symptom relief, you know? Like I'm not telling you that you need to do this stuff, but I do want to make you aware of it. So you can kind of go, okay, so there are a few different levers that we could potentially pull with this stuff, you know? Um, so do you have anything else to say on the nutrition front, uh, Nicola? I think like we were saying, you know, it is kind of just creating a baseline diet and then you can play around with the things like you're saying, like red meat consumption, gluten. And one of the best things that you can do is keep a food and symptom diary um, and just noticing trends. You know, if you were to have, you know, um, a lot of gluten, you know, uh, one week um, or kind of a lot of red meat one week and just kind of noticing the trends. Um, that's kind of one of the best things that you can do. Yeah. And all that stuff, it's actually very easy to do, but also very hard to do. Yeah. You know, like it's like, okay, all you have to do is keep track of the foods that you eat. Right. And then also go, okay, what are my symptoms like this week or this month or whatever? Right. But first of all, most people don't eat the same foods every single day. So you have to always be tracking if you have all the today, today or whatever, which, you know, that's fine. A lot of people track their food. Like I personally like tracking my food, but a lot of people find that difficult just to stay on top of it. But then also the symptoms can be hard to correlate to what's going on in the diet. You yeah. know, like you can be like, okay, I've done all of this stuff. I've you know really dialed all this stuff in, but you know, there could be a bit of a lag time. You know, it's three days later, you feel the effects of that. You're it's a, you know, it, it's a couple of hours later, you have your breakfast and the breakfast was the issue. And then you have your lunch. And then all of a sudden you're starting to have like symptoms after lunch. And you're like, Oh, it must've been the lunch when in reality it was the breakfast because it's just been digesting or whatever. So it's very hard to really dial things in. And it's the same with an elimination style diet. Like you can eliminate a load of different things, get symptom relief, but then you don't know which ones to introduce back in because you're like, I seem to be having better like symptoms here. I seem to be having like better, you know, life going on here. I don't want to just play with it and go, oh yeah, I'll just bring this thing back in. And all of a sudden you've got more symptoms again. And you know, you don't want that. Right. So elimination style diets or even like you know FODMAP reduction style diets which is somewhat of an elimination style diet it can be hard to do in practice and that's generally look it's not obviously it helps our business but that's generally why we recommend like getting a nutritionist or someone to help you with this stuff to navigate this stuff and go okay we're going to try this see how it gets on and you have that extra set of eyes looking at things you know um but yeah, the next next uh, thing that we want to talk about is supplements, because this is the thing that most people turn to, first of all, right? They're like, there must be a supplement. There must be some sort of like little magic pill that I can take. And look, I know it's so alluring. It's so alluring to be like, I can just take this supplement. I can go look on Amazon or iHerb or one of these sites and go, yeah, I'm going to buy this supplement. It says, you know, I was reading on Reddit or whatever. People said they have really good results with this. First of all, when you're reading something online, you don't know that person could literally be a bot that's just designed to sell a certain product, you know? So you don't know that first of all, right? And you could be paid to do these reviews or whatever. You just don't know, right? So it might not actually be associated with, you know, benefit, but also there, the research behind a lot of this stuff is just not like specific to endometriosis. And then it's just not 
well, some of it is specific endometriosis, but a lot of it is just like mechanistic hypothesizing. You're like, okay, this seems to be a mechanism in endometriosis. This supplement seems to be, you know, able to help with that mechanism in this like cell culture. Cool. Let's pair them together. It's good to go. But we don't have that kind of robust in-person data, right? But having said that, there are some supplements that we could be like, okay, maybe there's a little bit more support for this. Other ones, maybe we kind of like, we can get them from the diet. If we just eat a good diet, we don't need to be focusing on this, right? But we'll go through them. So the first one here is just like omega-3s, right? A lot of people, they just don't consume enough omega-3s. If you're not eating any fatty fish throughout the week, like chances are you're not consuming enough omega-3s, right? Yes, for sure. You can get them in, you know, certain other foods. Like, you know, there is some omega-3s in vegetables and stuff like that. But for the vast majority of people, the easiest way to get this in is to consume some sort of fatty fish, right? So if you're unable or unwilling to eat some fatty fish, you're just going to have to supplement, you know? And we've talked about this before, especially related to like, you know, vegetarian style dieting. There are vegetarian and plant-based options for this stuff. It doesn't mean that you have to consume like fish products, you know? But for most people, supplementing with some sort of omega-3 is going to be beneficial, right? Is it going to be a cure-all? No, but it does seem to be associated with redu reductions in inflammation and pain severity, right? So we have at least something, right? It's, it's not going to be a cure-all. I'm not going to say it's going to go 50% you know, reduction in your pain or whatever, but it's going to help. It's going to contribute to pain reduction, reducing inflammation, right? It might not for you. If you're eating a lot of fatty fish already, supplementing on top of that, it's not like, you know, more is better. There's just a you need to be getting a certain amount, right? Do you have anything to say on the omega three front? No, that that definitely not. But yeah, if I suppose if you're if you're not getting it in, um, if you're not going to have you know oily kind of fatty fish, definitely supplementing is something to consider. And then the next one here, I mean, I'm basically going to go through a few of these that I just saw online that I was like, look, there's I looked up the research on it, and there's some of them that are like, yeah, okay, we just really don't need to do this, but some of them. It actually kind of surprised me when I was like, oh, actually, yeah, mechanistically, this makes sense, but there's actually some other stuff going on, right? Like curcumin, right? Um, which is in turmeric. I always get the confused. It's in turmeric or turmeric is in curcumin, whichever way it is. <laughs> um, I think cur curcumin is in... It's in turmeric, yeah. It's in turmeric, yeah. right? Um, so I don't know if you eat maybe a lot of like curries or something, potentially you're getting some curcumin in your diet, but the vast majority of people are just not consuming a huge amount of curcumin. So potentially supplementing with it is going to be beneficial. And the reason it's potentially beneficial in the cases of endometriosis is it does seem to reduce inflammation. That's just in general, it does seem to have anti-inflammatory properties. That's not that magical. A lot of plant-based products seem to have anti-inflammatory properties, but I can't even speak, curcumin <laughs> uh, does potentially suppress the growth of endometrio endometriosis cells, right? So that was one that surprised me. And it's one of those ones that's like, okay, look, the research on this is not like robust. It's not like they have like thousands upon thousands of women. They're like, right, here you go. Here's a curcumin supplement and take this and let's assess the like endometriosis, you know, that you have, right? It's not like we have that data. We do have some data like that. But we do also have some data like in cells or in animal models that seems to support this, right? So, you know, curcumin is fairly innocuous in terms of it's not going to cause a huge amount of harm. In my mind, I'm like, look, trial it, see if it helps, right? Generally, I'm not an advocate of just, oh, just try it, try it and see. But with curcumin, there doesn't seem to be any huge risk of taking it, right? At least from my understanding, obviously, always do your own due, due diligence and look into this stuff yourself. Examine.com is always a great website to go on when you're looking at supplements. 
So look into that, see if it is potentially something that you want to investigate. But again, this is not going to be a game changer, at least from my understanding. It's not going to be something that's like, oh yeah, like this is this is going to really help. It's going to cure everything. You know, not really, right? Do you have anything to say on curcumin? No, it's just one of those ones that kind of claims to cure everything, I think, curcumin. So I think it's something maybe to add into already, like we were talking about that kind of base diet. It's not something I'd be looking at improving the diet before kind of adding adding something like that in. And then looking at the different supplements, some of them are terrible. So looking at one kind of a good bioavailability with it as well. Yeah, like a lot of them have, what is it, biopiperine. Yeah as well which does seem to help with that you know uh uptake of it we'll say you know there are other ones like liposomal curcumin and all this different stuff like yeah we can get down the rabbit hole of that stuff again go to examine.com that's the best way to to look at this stuff like we don't get any benefit from telling to go to examine.com we just you know we use it ourselves right and then there are some other supplements that people often recommend with this stuff and some of them are potentially you know we could we could argue potentially helpful but again it's this kind of mechanistic hypothesizing it's not something that i'd be like this is our front line this is what we do. This is the, the first, you know, you, you come to me, you have endometriosis and I give you this laundry list of supplements. That's not what's happening. We're going diet first, right? But we can supplement with that thiendomethane, right? That, that dim that you get from cruciferous vegetables, right? And, and that could potentially help with estrogen metabolism. There's other uh, supplements, and, well, nutrients as well, that can be found in the diet or in supplement form that can potentially also help with estrogen metabolism one of those is calcium deglucurase right so a lot of people you'll find online they do recommend this kind of methane, this, this dim uh, and calcium deglucurase right and some people find some symptom relief from that right is it something that i'd be like yeah look this is 100 really well supported no but is it potentially something that could you know maybe add a little bit to it maybe i don't know like i I, I'm not convinced by the research. I'm not 100%, you know, like, oh, this is going to be the, the game changer. Like I've taken uh, diendylmethane myself uh, and it just made my pee smell a bit weird. Um, but uh, it didn't really do anything in terms of changing my blood lipids of, or not my blood lipids, my blood work um, in terms of my estrogen. So for me, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not convinced about its efficacy. Now you can always argue, oh, like maybe you should take some more or whatever, but like, I'm not convinced, right? Um, and also with any of this hormonal stuff, like oftentimes people think like, oh, I'll just, you know, lash a few different products in and it'll change the hormonal environment. And okay, that might work. It might actually do stuff, right? But that doesn't mean that it's beneficial. You might be thinking like, oh, this is an estrogen mediated, you know, issue, but that doesn't mean that just lowering your estrogen to fucking hypogonadal levels is, is beneficial, right? And um, so we do want to be aware of that. Not that I'm saying that these supplements could do that, but it is something to be aware of, right? There are other ones that are also recommended in regard to hormonal related things. And one of them is Vitex, right? It has some big long name that I always forget, but Vitex is often recommended. And look, I really don't see the benefit of this. It does seem to increase estrogen in a lot of people. It's one of those ones that seems to be like this cure-all again in air quotes for any uh female health related issue everyone's like oh take some vitex it seems to help with hormonal regulation and yeah in some cases it does help right it can definitely be supportive in, in certain cases right and um, but if this is an estrogen mediated issue and vitex potentially increases your estrogen right it wouldn't be one that i'd be like 
this is the one that we go for. You know, some people might find relief from it or relief with it, I should say. Um, but it's just not, I, I wouldn't be supportive of it. I wouldn't be like, this is something that we should try. I just bring it to your awareness though, because again, I know people search these message boards or whatever, and they're like, this is the supplement. They have this shopping cart of like 200 pounds worth of fucking stuff in there. Thinking, like, I'll take all of these every single day, you know? Um, do you have anything to say on any of those like estrogen related or hormone related supplements? Yeah, like I think the thing is, is that our endocrine system is such a complex system and it's likely that, you know, some people that are reporting benefits, it is likely that some people will benefit from some of these things. But like I said, the whole system is so complex and we don't know how we as individuals are going to react um, to to say each of these supplements or a dietary intervention or anything at all. Yeah, 100%. And again, look, we think that we uh, are gods in this world. We think we're like, oh yeah, like I can just, you know, do whatever I want. You know, I'm master of the universe here, but like, we're really not. Like we have a basic grasp of this stuff. We're basically just hairless monkeys here. So like, you, know, you can mess with this stuff, but it doesn't mean that you're gonna mess with it in the right way, you know? Um, there are some other supplements that seem to be, you know, somewhat supported. Uh, N-acetylcysteine, I, again, I've said it before, I take N-acetylcysteine, it's great for liver health, great for a few different things. Um, wasn't isn't something that i'd be like oh everyone needs to be taking this however for endometriosis it does seem to be associated with reduced cyst size uh, and growth you know so again that's one that i'm like look very little harm in taking this like potentially you know it's yeah. but what i always recommend is again examine.com you know see if it's right for you you also get like the different like uh recommendations in terms of how much you should be taking and all that kind of stuff you know do you have anything to say on that nac or NAC as people sometimes call it cool um magnesium magnesium is one of those ones that you can get enough from your diet especially if you're eating a lot of green leafy vegetables but it is also one of those ones that seems to be associated with first of all reductions in you know, period related pains in general right a lot of women will say that if they're like oh i just take some magnesium when i'm having like period cramps or when i'm on my period or in the the lead up to my period and they're like i seem to get symptom relief from that you know yeah. oftentimes it's this again my monkey brain the way i think of it is i'm like look calcium is associated with muscle contraction you know like you need calcium to contract your muscles and um, and then magnesium is associated with muscle relaxation you know that's not really true but uh, that's kind of the way my monkey brain thinks about it like magnesium is actually really important in the body overall like they always quote that figure of it's always associated with like over 300 enzymatic reactions in the body um, and that is because well it's for a variety of reasons but magnesium is actually bound to atp so if you have any like energy related things going on anything that requires energy like it's atp mg it has that magnesium associated with it right and um, but in regard to endometriosis, it does seem to be associated with reduced pain experience uh, due to dysmenorrhea uh, by lowering inflammatory you know, stuff going on. And it also has anti-spasmodic and muscle relaxing properties, right? Now, most people can get enough magnesium from their diet, but also it's, you know, it's kind of easy to just add a little bit more magnesium to the diet in supplement form. You know, There are better and worse magnesium supplements and it's one of those ones where I'm like, yeah, look, try it out. Like, and I have some magnesium in the press there. You know, it's like, it's not a huge issue to take some magnesium, at least in my experience. Like I'm not a doctor. I'm not telling people what to, to take, but magnesium is fairly, 
harmless as long as you're not just mega dosing it and i don't think most people would want to mega dose it because if you just haven't use a powder or whatever like it's not great and if you do mega dose it you're probably just going to shit it out because it has like again similar properties <laughs> in the uh intestines and stuff you know and um, but magnesium you going to say on, on that nicola no it's just it's one that's commonly recommended for a lot of kind of menstrual cycle kind of dysfunctionary irregularities um, so it can yeah improve cramps and as well as another benefit of um, improving sleep as well, which is, it's a commonly recommended sleep supplement. So that can that can be very beneficial before before bed, especially if someone's experiencing pain or disrupted sleep um, from having endometriosis. Exactly. Um, then the next well the next few are really just vitamins. Uh, uh, one is a sleep related one, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, but B vitamins, right? If you're just not getting enough B vitamins, obviously you're not going to be able to process things uh, effectively, right? B vitamins are just like, they're basically the foundational vitamin in the diet, right? <laughs> because they do everything. They're basically a class of vitamins um, and they, they seem to be involved in pretty much every reaction in the body in some way, shape or form, right? Now, in relation to uh, endometriosis, you know, we could argue that they're involved in the inflammatory cascades and estrogen metabolism. So if you don't have enough B vitamins, that inflammation cycle and your estrogen metabolism is not going to be where we want it. However, it's also very easy to get enough B vitamins from the diet. Like if you eat some fruit and vegetables, like you're kind of good to go, right? You know, some of them you do need to get in, in, in meat, but like you're kind of good to go in regards to your B vitamins, as long as you're consuming a well-balanced diet, right? However, if you are a, a person that maybe you're dealing with some sort of you know, IBS, or maybe you have like a, a FODMAP sensitivity and you, you have to eat a little bit lower vegetables than you would potentially like. Yeah, maybe in that case, taking some B vitamins can be helpful. Maybe just take a multivitamin. So you're like, right, I'm just going to cover my bases. They generally include enough of those B vitamins as well. But it isn't one that I would be like, you need to consume this. You absolutely need to consume this. If you over consume those B vitamins, you're just going to piss them out anyway, you know? So you basically just get expensive piss if you're eating enough. So save yourself the money and just eat a well-balanced diet, you know? Um, you don't have anything else to say on the B vitamins? Yeah, food first approach, like you were saying. Yeah. Um, next one then is vitamin D. This is often recommended in, you know, regardless of the hormonal situation, people are like, oh yeah, you need to get some vitamin D. If you have low testosterone, vitamin D. If you have high testosterone, vitamin D. If you have low estrogen, vitamin D. If you have high estrogen, vitamin D. It just seems to be recommended across the board, right? It does also seem to be associated with reductions in inflammation. And in general, we do seem to see that kind of better hormonal balance from taking vitamin D, you know, a lot of people in the Northern and well, maybe Southern latitudes as well. I haven't looked into that as much, but in like Europe and stuff, we do seem to be in North America do seem to be a little bit deficient in vitamin D. Now that's not to say that you just go out and take 10,000 IU every single day. Like most people don't need that much, but if you are someone that sits indoors all day and maybe you're not out in the sun at all, you're going to need to take some sort of vitamin D. Right. Um, Vitamin D, potentially beneficial here. I generally recommend most people, I'm a bit of a vitamin D advocate. I'm like, look, take a thousand to 2000 IUs per day, maybe less 
during the summer or maybe just don't take it during the summer like this stuff does it is fat soluble so you can store it so you know just get outside into the sun if you can like yesterday in london it was a scorcher so i got a lot of sun didn't take my vitamin d yesterday as a result of that and today it's you know very overcast very cloudy i'll probably take some vitamin d you know so this is one of those ones where i'm like look you don't necessarily need to take this every single day you don't need to take it year round but it is potentially beneficial for endometriosis as well as a, a whole host of other uh, you know, issues and whatever, you know, um, you don't mind anything else to say on vitamin D? No, it's, 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 you know, you know, yourself, it's associated with like a whole host of, you know, chronic diseases um, and particularly with endometriosis supplementation kind of before menstruation has been associated with kind of reduction in pain and um, reduction in the use of painkillers as well, which is interesting. So get that D in. Um, Next one is, well, I'll add these two together, vitamin C and vitamin E, right? They're antioxidants. They do a lot of other things in the body, but they are antioxidants. Vitamin C is often associated with like immune boosting. And it is technically your immune system that is clearing the endometrial cells that get to other places. Like it's your immune system that's recognizing, oh, this, this shouldn't be here, right? So we do want to have that good uh, immune system, right? So vitamin C potentially having a benefit here with regard to endometriosis, but I would probably lay my hat more on the antioxidant that kind of anti-inflammatory benefit from vitamin C, right? Same with vitamin E has an antioxidant benefit. I don't think you need to supplement with either of these. If you are just eating a lot of fruit and veg, like you're, you're kind of good to go. If you're eating some sort of like vegetable oil, like, you know, olive oil, for example, which we often recommend get some like extra virgin olive oil and does have generally speaking, a lot of vitamin E in it as well. So you don't necessarily need to supplement with either of those. Um, I'm, I don't need to say anything more on that really. It's just, it's not the oxidant, right? Melatonin, right? This is one that, technically it's a supplement technically it's like a hormone in the body or at least a signaling uh, uh, messenger in the body um it is also illegal in ireland as far as i'm aware it's not illegal in england as far as i'm aware as well i know it's not illegal in a lot of the countries in like continental europe france whatever like you can get i was in paris like whatever in December was January, whenever it was. And like, they literally just sold melatonin over the counter and being from Ireland, I'm like, you can't get melatonin in, in Ireland. Right. Um, but melatonin is that kind of, you know, whatever you want to call it, that sleep hormone, if you will. Right. It is that hormone that, you know, initiates the sleep sleepiness, I suppose. Um, so it is also an antioxidant, right? So it does have antioxidant properties in the body, which is beneficial here. Melatonin is also associated with, you know, hormones in a few different ways. Some people say it's a negative, like uh, people with, uh, or sorry, say women who have higher levels of melatonin in like their teens seem to have a delayed menarche, right? They seem to get their periods later, right? That's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, that's not necessarily a, an issue, but because of that, some people go, oh, like it's it basically, it delays puberty no bueno you know and you can induce this in rats and stuff and lab you know mice or whatever it's like okay give them melatonin and they have delayed men right so that is one of those things where it's like people have this little bit of a negative connotation with it but also some people have a positive connotation with it because it does also seem to benefit hormonal health in general right and just like we have a general like a food first approach with this stuff we have a sleep first approach <laughs> 
<laughs> so like you, you, you can supplement with melatonin. Well, in Ireland, you can supplement with it unless you're on the black market, right? But in general, like I know a lot of people from across the world listen to this, like you can get melatonin, right? You can supplement with it. A lot of people think, oh, more is better. And they're in these like, you know, three, five, 10 milligram doses. You really don't need that much. You really need a very, very s- small amount, right? Like I'm talking like less than a gram, right? Um, is, is it in grams or milligrams? Either way, right? You need very, very little. Go to examine.com. They'll tell you the actual numbers. So I'm not just remembering them off the top of my head, right? But you need very, very little to actually get the effects, right? A lot of people will take more because it more does work more effectively in the short term, but we don't want to be chronically supplementing with that, right? And it can be beneficial for like stuff like jet lag, you know, if you're like traveling all over the place and you're like, I need to be able to get to sleep at certain times or whatever, it could be beneficial for that. But when we're talking about something that you're going to have to potentially benefit or to supplement with chronically, I would rather just see you get to sleep earlier. I'd rather just see you get your sleep sorted. Now, this is a particular issue for people with endometriosis because you potentially are in pain. The sleeping can be potentially harder to get because you're in pain, right? So it is a little bit of a, a chicken or egg situation where you're like, yeah, getting better sleep would benefit you, but it's hard to get better sleep, you know? But you can still do things really encourage like better sleep hygiene practices, like, you know, the last hour, two hours before bed, like you're really trying to initiate that kind of sleepy drive. And you're trying to do stuff like minimize your blue light exposure. You're not getting like really hyped up. You're not taking like caffeine throughout the day, like later in the day, like stuff like that, you know? For me, I'm like, you don't need to supplement with melatonin if you're doing everything right sleep-wise, you know? But do you have any other... uh, either supplements that you're like you've heard of people recommended or do you have anything on any of those supplements you're like oh we should have mentioned that no i think think that was pretty comprehensive fantastic so the final few little things um is just the lifestyle related stuff right and i'm not gonna you know belabor the point here because we talk about it all the time we want to have good stress management practices and we want to have good sleep practices you know I'm not going to go into them too in depth here because we've talked about them a million times. So go back and listen to all of our podcasts (laughs) and you'll hear a million and one different tips for all of that stuff. Um, But do you have anything else to note on the the lifestyle related stuff? Um, No, not really. Just, yeah, like managing your stress, managing your sleep um, again, just can help with reductions in pain as well. Fantastic. And then the final thing I wanted to touch on, well, I don't want to touch on it, I want you to touch on it, is like medical interventions, right? Because there are a few questions related to this stuff and I'm not in a position to answer these, but in relation to like drugs, right, is the use of painkillers okay? Because that's something that people really worry about. They're like, oh, like, is there long-term side effects to this? Is it okay to be using this? Should I avoid it? Should I just like, you know, grin and bear it? What's the story there with painkillers? So the thing is with painkillers or any of the medication, they're, they're really not going to, um, you know, kind of treat the endometriosis. It's not going to cure it. Um, it's really kind of like a, a surgical disease that if you want to kind of um, um, really kind of uh, treat this, you want to be taking out that tissue. Um, so in terms of people, it depends, again, you'd be working with your GP on this, on the severity of symptoms. So if someone that has kind of a mild, um, moderate endometriosis, kind of a mixture of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like your ibuprofen, mixture of that and the pill um, can help with symptoms. Um, again, you're not, you're not getting to the root cause. Um, but yeah, kind of the use of painkillers, particularly around when you're, whether you get the mid-cycle pain um, or whether it's around your period that you get the worst pain. 
Um, so a mixture of, of those two is, is generally what's what's used. There are other um, kind of um, hormonal treatments like an allotropin releasing hormone um, is also used. Um, it's, we're not really sure kind of which has a better kind of efficacy for treating, for um, managing symptoms. Um, and again, that would just come down to, you know, the person, their GP um, and what might um, suit them best. But yeah, it, it, it's fine to use um, painkillers again in short term if you've no other kind of, you know, comorbidities or kidney issues. Um, you know, you might, if you're on them long-term, you might be looking at something that you might kind of need like a stomach protectant tablet, you know, like a PPI, um, that sort of thing. Again, it's not something that I would um, take upon myself to decide to, to be on painkillers long-term. Because mm. um, I know that is something that people really do kind of worry about because some people just like pop them like they're like, they're like, you yeah. know, or whatever. And I don't think that's necessarily beneficial, but also I'm not the one that's dealing with the pain, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Um, but then you also mentioned it there, the pill, right? This is another one that people kind of go, like, should I be taking it? Like, is it just masking the symptoms and I'm just going to get them back? Like we talked about earlier on, like you could be this 32 year old woman or whatever and go, yeah, I've been on the pill for the last, whatever, 20 years odd. And now I want to you know, get pregnant and I come off the pill and now I have all these issues, you know, um, but the pill, is it, is it something that we should be you know, thinking about, oh, this is something that could potentially help here, or is it something that we should maybe be avoiding? Yeah, well, it's definitely something that can help with symptom management. Um, and again, it is, it is more so just, it is primarily going to be for symptom man- management. And there, there are, um, you know, some places that it can kind of, um, you know, reduce the size of, of the, of the, you know, endometrial-like tissue that, that's scattered around the place, um, but not for the endometrioma. So that's kind of the cysts that are kind of within the ovaries. Um, so it is important, I suppose, to know whether you have one of those endometriomas, like we said, that they can, um, you know, cause almost like erosion in, into the ovaries. So in, in that kind of sense, maybe the pill would be, would be masking something like that. But again, it's really something that, you know, kind of you and your, your GP will be deciding what the best option is. If you, it depends what you're looking for. Are you looking for, um, are you looking to have a baby? Are you looking to just manage the symptoms? So it depends what's appropriate for the person. Yeah. Like it sounds to me like it's definitely something that's beneficial for symptom relief, you know? So yeah. that you're like, look, I just really need to get a handle on these symptoms. I'm really in pain. It's debilitating. It's in- interfering with my work or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. It seems to be all systems go, obviously talk to your doctor, et cetera. Right. But it also seems to be one of those things where you have to be a little bit more cautious in terms of thinking like, right, this could potentially cause issues down the line, not the actual pill itself, but more yeah. so the fact that, it could be masking the fact that you have like a, a cyst on one of your ovaries or both of your ovaries and that could let potentially lead to infertility down the road. You know, you could be coming off the pill again in your thirties and going now it's ready to have a child. I'm willing to you know, deal with the symptoms or whatever, but you've actually been ma- You've masked the fact that you've had like, you know, uh, cysts on your uh, ovaries for the last five years, you know? Um, so it is one of those things, at least for me, I would be looking at that going, yeah, definite symptom relief here, definite benefit in that regard. But I just want to make sure that I'm, you know, looking after the ovaries. And how would you do that? Would you get like an ultrasound on the ovaries? Like, how would it be diagnosed that there is like something going on on the ovaries? Is that something that we could actually be aware of ahead of time? Or is it, and this kind of goes into the next uh, thing, is it something that like, it's a surgery that you have to do? It's, we have to see it. 
Yeah, so the, the gold standard is surgical intervention. Like there are other um, things you can do, like a transvaginal ultrasound. Um, it may or may not necessarily like pick it up. Um, but a uh, yeah, surgical intervention, like a kind of like your keyhole surgery, um, is kind of the gold standard for for a diagnosis of, of endometriosis. Cool. Um, and then on the surgery side of things, because this is obviously something that scares a lot of people. Right. Um, I've never had a surgery, so I, I don't know. I've never had to deal with those thoughts. But if someone came to me and said, like, OK, we're going to have to do a surgery to just investigate, I would be like, OK, that's that seems a bit like invasive because it is. <laughs> right. Um, but then if they also said, like, oh, we have to do a surgery to like remove some of this tissue. Right. Seems a bit you know, intensive as well. But then also, if you said we have to do a, a surgery to like remove like, you know, part of your ovaries or part of your womb or whatever or your whole womb you get a hysterectomy or whatever it is like that also seems incredibly invasive so how do we think about this whole like surgical environment both in terms of like the I don't know the actual like practical like okay this is a surgery to have to do but then also potentially like you're getting a diagnosis of endometriosis and they're telling you that you know you're infertile and you're maybe a 28 year old woman here going yeah. I wanted to have kids, you know, like, how do we, how do we think about that whole spectrum? Yeah. So like making the surgical decision, it's a big decision to make. So it is something that people will try to avoid and surgeons will try to avoid unless symptoms are really severe. Um, even, even with the laparoscopic, um, you know, intervention, it still is, it still is like you're saying a big deal. Um, like a hysterectomy in itself, again, it's an even bigger deal. You're essentially putting someone into an early menopause, um, you know, which we've spoken previous podcasts have, you know, impacts on your bone health, cardiovascular health, etc. So it's not something that can be taken lightly. And as well, even having a hysterectomy doesn't mean that that's not the cure for endometriosis either. Like we said, they can still pop up in, you know, the bowel, um, you know, rarely like the lung or, you know, any tissue really in the body. Um, so it's not exactly having a hysterectomy can improve symptoms, but it's not exactly curative either. Mm. Oh, yeah, that it, it is one of those things because again, I was reading on all those different forums and stuff, going like, okay, well, what are people saying? And people will say stuff like, oh, I got surgery and I'm still in pain. You know, it's not one of those things where this is a cure all. So, like, I I don't like giving people false hope. You know, I don't be like, oh, this is it, this is it, this is the key. You know, because it, it kind of like when you you find something, you're like, oh, we seem to have the answer to this. You kind of want to give people hope. You want to be able to go, oh, like we have the answer to this. But yeah. with endometriosis, it seems like one of those things where it's just so complex. It's so like multivariant that you're kind of like, we have to trial a few different things and they're not all going to work, you know? Um, but yeah, look, I don't really have anything else to say on endometriosis in general. Is there anything that you think we should have covered or that we forgot to cover that you want to mention now? No, I, th I think we, we, we got through most things. Um, like I said, just if you're someone with um, quite significant, you know, period pain, heavy periods, a lot of pelvic pain, um, it is something that, you know, you, should, you shouldn't have to put up with. Um, so it is worth going and speaking to your GP if, if you're worried about it. 100%. And again, especially because this is like a, a silent one, potentially, you know, you could just be like, oh, that's normal. You know, that's my, my normal cycle. I've always had a cycle like that, you know, and um, it can be, again, the average time is eight years, as you said, you know, eight yeah. years of diagnosis. And that can obviously be made, you know, longer if you're not willing to go in and actually talk to the doctor and 
you know, discuss the pain that you're in, you know? And, um, but anyway, look, that's endometriosis. I'm sure there's other things that I could potentially be doing. Like, this is just our understanding at the moment. This is just our understanding in terms of the research that we've read, the experience that we've had, etc. Nicola is a doctor as well, obviously. So she has doctor training. Um, but we do plan on putting more information out in terms of female health in, in, in general. And um, obviously this podcast series is one way we're doing it. So if you're not subscribed, please subscribe to the podcast. If you find a benefit from this shared on your Instagram, etc. I know a lot of people have been sharing it on Instagram saying that they're really enjoying the podcast series and um, just make sure you tag us. Otherwise I won't see it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. So other than that, don't have much else to say. You can find us in all the usual places in terms of social media. They're all linked below. Instagram is our main hub. You can go find us on our website as well. We do have coaching spaces available both for like just full coaching package, training and nutrition, and then nutrition only. And if you're looking for female related help, look, Dr. Nicola here, she does still have spaces available. So if you're interested in that, look, just get in touch. We'll talk you through the process and we'll see if it's a good fit, if we can actually help you, right? And um, other than that, I don't have much else to say. So yeah, we'll, we'll see you all in the next episode.